Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. And right now, it is trucks plowing into overpasses on BC highways. It's happened a lot in 2023. And just this afternoon, the BC government announced some new rules to help overpass or to help prevent trucks hitting overpasses and other infrastructure. And here's Transportation Minister Rob Fleming with some of those new rules. We're taking tougher action to prevent these crashes, tougher regulations, bigger fines and robust enforcement. And we are requiring new technical requirements, including warning devices and speed limiter technology on every commercial truck in the province. We're introducing stronger deterrence for those very few, and I want to stress very few, outliers, those very few unsafe commercial drivers and the companies that employ them. To talk about these new rules just put into place, we have... Uh, BC's Minister of Transportation, Rob Fleming. Hi, Rob. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Martin. Pleasure to be with you. Great. And it's kind of crazy to think we have to formalize rules to avoid trucks driving into infrastructure. Uh, But what are the main issues here? Um, Are these vehicles just not safe enough? Is it driver training that needs to improve? What do you see as the answer? Well, I think it's you know, in terms of driver training, we've done a lot over the last couple of years introducing mandatory entry-level training. So to get a commercial truck license today in British Columbia is significantly more difficult and requires much greater mastery of skills before a license is issued. And you had a lead-in article there on your news show about the Humboldt Broncos, and the reason we did that came out of the inquiry into that tragedy. And uh, we work with ICBC, we work with the trucking industry. So the newest drivers have the highest level of training. And then, of course, the bulk of our workforce are people who are very experienced. And what we were talking about today was how do we gain better enforcement through stronger deterrence on a very, very small percentage of drivers who are basically exhibiting carelessness. You know, they're not getting the permits they need to or they're not measuring their loads properly and they're hitting our infrastructure. Now, you've got to bear in mind uh, how rare this is. We've got about 100,000 truck movements each and every day in our province. That's about $35 million a year. Uh, when we look at the infrastructure crashes on our highway system over the last two years, it's about 30. Uh, but it creates a big problem, even though it is such a small and rare occurrence. I mean, you've got people that listen to your station who are stuck in traffic when something like this happens. We had that crash in Delta not too long ago, a few months ago. Uh, created havoc. And I guess the announcement today uh, represents the thinking we've been doing with the trucking industry as our key partner about how do we get the real small outlier companies and poor drivers who are making entirely preventable mistakes and and get that down to zero. And uh, the industry is right there with the government saying, you got to make this significantly more expensive. So 
one of the ways is fines, but the most most significant thing we announced today was what we call a progressive enforcement framework. So we're really only talking about 12 or 15 companies out of 16,000 commercial trucking companies that have a record of hitting our infrastructure. And what will likely happen if they don't you know, get the message here is that the economic penalties they will pay are very steep indeed. And if it happens on a repeat basis, it could include outright cancellation of their carrier safety certificate, which essentially means they can't operate and do business in BC anymore. I hope that doesn't have to happen, but uh, when you combine fines as well as grounding the entire fleet of a carrier involved in an incident like this, so that every single truck that they own is not able to do business until a, a, a safety investigation or a safety audit is completed, these are these are stiff economic sanctions to try and get this down to zero. Because I would think that if a trucking company gets into an accident like this, it's expensive to begin with for them yeah. with their equipment. Are you concerned that just raising fines uh, is, is not going to be enough? Well, I think the prevention side is key. So, there, of course, driver education is, is critically important. But we also need to utilize all the technology that we have to keep vehicles safe. So another thing we announced today was uh, dump-style vehicles must have functioning operational in-cab warning devices so that any time the dump box is raised while a vehicle is in motion, an alarm goes off. Uh, we'll be the only other province uh, besides Quebec uh, to do this. We think that's important. Um, it will only cost each each truck or cab a few hundred dollars to implement that. The other thing is around excessive speeding. That can be a factor in a lot of the accidents we see on our highways. We're going to bring in a speed limiter requirement. Almost every engine in a, a commercial heavy-duty truck has a speed limiter already factory installed. We're going to require those to be switched on, and it will cap the maximum speed at 105 kilometers per hour. So there's a lot of things. The driver education, as I mentioned, was was done with that mandatory entry-level training. It teaches some things that drivers themselves told us. They didn't have the knowledge they thought they needed to be 100% safe all of the time. So, you know, chaining up, understanding how to drive safely over high mountain passes, uh, air brake uh, theory and training before they get their license issued. BC now has the uh, toughest and longest driver uh, education program in the country, and these are all good things that we know will uh, make the industry even safer going forward. And what about government uh, accountability itself? Things like uh, signage and things like that, was there mm -hmm. some sort of focus on what the government can do to make things safer? Well, we have something called a uh, height clearance tool. This is really easy to do. You could do this on your cell phone, and it should be done each and every time somebody is uh, hauling a, a freight or cargo behind uh, the cab of their truck. And it basically puts a map in place of where you're going from to where you need to go to make that delivery, and it gives you the height of every overpass along the route. And, it, and, and therefore, it would flag you know, the height of the load you're carrying versus the route you should take to deliver it. Safely. It takes less than minutes, and this is the responsibility of the dispatcher, the driver, the company. And I think with the economic penalties now, where you could actually, you know, be unable to operate uh, for weeks while an investigation or safety audit is being concluded, or if you've been involved in incidents like this, you may be out of business. Is going to send the strongest possible message that we could to the industry. And again, I do want to praise the 99.9% of the industry and, and drivers out there who are professionals, who do a great job. It's unfortunate we have to talk about the very few who are not. Um, 
but you know we've we've, we've seen enough here, and uh, I think the measures that we're we're taking now are the are, are ones that are going to prevent this from happening. And I guess we've been relatively lucky, despite the fact twenty twenty three has had too many of these instances, mm-hmm. but they could be very very dangerous. They can be. They they put the driver at risk. They put those around them on the highway at risk. Uh, they shut down traffic sometimes for hours and hours. Um, you know, if people who listen to your station who've ever been stuck uh, while an accident is being cleared will know how frustrating that is. Uh, we don't want to see that happening. It's, it's 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 bad for people's safety, of course. It's it's also bad for the economy if this is happening. I mean, nothing moves. And I think that's why the trucking industry stood with us today saying, yeah, be tougher, have the strongest deterrence possible, because when a truck hits a piece of our infrastructure and and snarls up the highway, their members are losing money. They're stuck in traffic. They're not making their deliveries. Uh, and uh, it's bad for everyone. Right. We're talking to Rob Fleming, Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure. And before I let you go, just a, a quick little uh, note. How How is uh, holiday driving looking? I know that uh, a lot of the flooding that happened two years ago, a lot of that has been fully mm-hmm. repaired. Uh, looking mm-hmm. into the holiday driving season, how are we looking? Well, yes, the highways have, that were damaged uh, two years ago in the Atmospheric River have been re- have been repaired to a remarkable degree. So, you know, the Coquihalla is entirely complete now. We're still working on the Fraser Canyon highways, uh, but they're drivable. We just opened up a, a replacement bridge uh, on uh, Highway 1 that's uh, open in both directions, unfettered. So it's uh, testament to all the work that's been done, but I would urge every listener before you're uh, you know, going to visit uh, loved ones and family and friends over the holidays, always check Drive BC for the most current road conditions. Uh, take preparations, have your vehicle prepared for winter, have the right tires, you know, have some supplies uh, in the trunk of your car uh, in case you do get stuck and it's cold out there. Uh, and, um, and again, yeah, Drive BC is your go-to service. It's the busiest website that the province of BC has, and it tells you up-to-the-minute locations. We've got thousands of live cameras on our highway system that people can look at, and they can see, see what it's like. But it, we're into winter now. There's going to be snow and precipitation in all parts of the province, and, and people need to plan their trips very carefully. Well, thank you, Rob. Thank you very much for having me, Martin. And this is Martin Strong in for jazz on this Thursday afternoon. Burl Ives, some Christmas music. Are, are you getting any Christmas cards in the mail? Definitely not getting as many as, as I used to. Uh, it may be me. I don't know. But I remember when I was a kid, uh, around now you would get a few every day. Uh, my dad used to tie a string across the fireplace and then hang them all up. But not so much anymore. Uh, especially now that people can just go to Facebook or email uh, and send an e-card. And you would think that younger people would be the least likely to send an actual paper Christmas card, but not so. According to the Greeting Card Association, people in the 18 to 34 age group are actually sending more Christmas cards than the previous generation did. 
So I guess they, they realized the power of an actual Christmas card you can hold in your hand, actually signed by somebody. And one person who understands the importance of a Christmas card is my next guest. Aaron Schulte is the organizer and founder of the Christmas Card Collective. For years now, Aaron has been encouraging people to share their holiday greetings with a Christmas card that is then shared with members of the homeless community in the Lower Mainland. And Aaron is with us now. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. All right. So uh, before I get to what the Christmas Card Collective does and uh, why it's so important, I want to just get your take on why a Christmas card, an actual paper Christmas card is so important. Well, I think it's it's very personal. It's as simple as the, the penmanship. It's as simple as the words that are conveyed. It's as simple as it being a token or or something tangible um, that you can that you can potentially keep for a very long time. And and on top of that, some of them are very beautiful. Some of them sing songs, and some of them are you know covered in glitter. So um, I think it's it's just exciting to get something mail, and who doesn't like to get something in a bright colored envelope delivered to your house? Absolutely. So the Christmas Card Collective, you collect. Christmas cards from people, and then you distribute them to unhoused people, like not only in the Lower Mainland, but all over the place, right? Yeah, so um, in 2017, I was running a soup kitchen on 135A in Wally, which is a, was a very highly populated homeless uh, encampment there. And I had the idea to handwrite beautiful, heartfelt Christmas wishes and cards and, and have them handed out on the street and then as well have them placed on the pillows of shelter beds in the nights leading up to Christmas. Um, so I reached out to a, a wonderful company back east called A-Line Greetings, or a Canadian greeting card company, and they donated to me a couple thousand Christmas cards. So I had offered to my community to come and pick up cards, bring them into your classroom, bring them home, and fill them just with, Super positive, um, well wishes and wishes of hope and and, and just happy thoughts, um, and then return them to me. They're always proofread. Every card is proofread, and then we seal them, and then we distribute them. And so the first year, we just basically took care of the local community, which is um, was basically Wally. Uh, year number two, it was Wally into Abbotsford, um, onto the island. Then the next year went further east into Calgary, into Sherwood Park, into Toronto. And then the last year before COVID, we were hitting 10,000 cards. And they were laying on shelter beds as far east as Toronto, as far south as Los Angeles, Chicago, New York. Wow. Um, yeah, and then COVID hit, so that kind of. Yeah, no kidding. And then, and then that happened. But what, what happens to somebody who, who maybe is at a shelter? And uh, maybe they're not—they're having a tough time. What happens to them when they are given a Christmas card? Well, I'm—I get a really nice um, version when I get calls after Christmas, just from the different shelters telling me how the cards were received. I mean, a lot of people in the shelter system have either lost their children to the foster care system; um, they don't have any family due to you know addiction issues and whatever. So they get a handwritten card from a child that's, you know, six, seven years old 
um, just with this childlike wonder, just saying, you know, it could say something as, as silly as, I know you don't have a home, but know that we're going to be thinking of you on Christmas night. You know, love Billy um, from whatever school. Um, then the next night they can open up their second card and it could be written in from an inmate in a, uh, a jail in BC. The third night they can open up another one and a professional sports athlete written into it. Wow. So it's, wow. yeah. So I like to have it be a minimum of the five nights leading up to Christmas, um, because it really gives them something to look forward to. Right. And, and quickly, how can people get involved and help out the Christmas card collective? Well, we are down to the wire. Right now, we, we literally have probably until the 20th um, to locally accept cards, and those would be distributed, obviously, locally, um, because the other ones need to be shipped earlier. Um, I am in North Delta. You can find me on uh, Facebook on the Christmas Card Collective, or you can look up um, Aaron Schulte as well. Um, on Facebook, but we are down to the wire. And I just actually today received 2,000 more cards from A-Line Greetings um, that are going to be at my house in North Delta. So they can reach out to me on Facebook and maybe drop by is fine too. I also just wanted to mention that um, some local companies um, like VanCam, Comox Pacific, and Overland, um, as well as uh, the company that I work for, Blue Chip Logistics, have graciously donated um, hand-delivering these cards to locations outside of BC. So that's just such a such a wonderful thing and such a huge help. Right. Well, Aaron Schulte, the founder and organizer of Christmas Card Collective, uh, keep up the great work and uh, thanks for talking to us and have a great holiday. Merry Christmas. This is Martin Strong sitting in for Jazz this Thursday afternoon. Our number to call if you want to send a text or uh, record on the buzz line, 604-331-2899, 331-2899. If you want to uh, talk about anything, we've been talking about Christmas cards. We've been talking about trucks driving into overpasses. Uh, and also, uh, now we're going to talk about um, what's happening with the park board. Last week, Mayor Ken Sim revealed plans to get rid of the park board. And last night, at a very contentious, long city council meeting, a lot of dissenting voices, the mayor passed his motion to request the provincial government dissolve the park board because the provincial government has to do it. Uh, and that would leave the management and protection of our public spaces and beaches uh, to city council. Dan Fumano of the Vancouver Sun has been covering this story and he's here now. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so it was quite the meeting last night, quite a few hours, quite uh, heated. Yeah, indeed. It was a long day at city council. Um you know, the whole meeting, they, they dealt with a number of other items before getting to this park board question, but uh, it was a long, you know, 12-hour kind of day at council. Uh, the park board motion itself had uh, attracted, I think, more than 160 different people had signed up to speak, a lot of them representing different community organizations. A lot of the current elected park board commissioners had uh, registered to address council. So it was a big, long um 
and, and at times kind of emotional and uh, charged. Meeting. Right. Yeah. So it, so it seems like from a distance, this is basically the mayor spinning this as kind of a way to streamline the management and maintenance of the parks. And the opponents say it's a way for the city to basically start developing on certain park areas. Is, is that fair to say? Well, people are definitely raising concerns about what this could mean for the future of public spaces and parks and beaches and all the areas that are currently sort of under the jurisdiction of the park board. The mayor has tried to emphasize repeatedly that under his watch, parks will remain parks, golf courses will remain golf courses. That's what he's saying. Uh, and his proposed framework going forward, which would eliminate the elected park board, uh, he's proposing to bring in uh, what he's described as stronger protections so that any the revoking of the status of any permanent park would require a unanimous decision from the mayor and council as well as a public referendum. But some people have raised concerns in the last few days leading up to last night's vote saying, well, that actually only extends to parks that are, uh, those protections only kind of cover parks that are technically classified as permanent, whereas a lot of the city's parks don't technically have that classification yeah. um so there are some worries around there now going forward I, I don't think that these changes would put would put those parks would make it easier to revoke the status of those parks without permanent designation um but just there wouldn't be an elected park board that has jurisdiction over them going forward if if indeed these changes go through because of course the final decision isn't up to city council all they decided last night is to formally ask the province to make these changes to the Vancouver Charter. And so obviously it's going to come down now to a decision from the provincial government. Right. And and this is a, an interesting part of this whole discussion is about permanent de- designation. I think a lot of people don't know that some green spaces uh, are, are not classified as permanent. How many uh, uh, parks and beaches are not classified as permanent? I, I'm not sure of the exact number, but I did. One of the current park board commissioners said that it's about 40% of the city's parks and kind of public spaces are are not classified as permanent. And this includes a lot of really well known and well loved, you know, parks and public spaces like part of Jericho Beach, um, Sunset Beach, uh, Crab Park down by Portside, uh, Vanier Park. So there's a lot of parks that aren't. Uh, technically classified as permanent. Um, and, you know, uh, the mayor and uh, council, they sort of they addressed this last night as well, that, you know, these changes aren't going to suddenly make it easier uh, to change the status of any of those temporary parks or anything. Because um, some are classified as temporary, some are classified under a third different distinction. It all gets kind of technical. But, uh, you know, people were worrying about this, which I think kind of just speaks to how fast this has all come about, you know, at the start of last week, the people, the public in Vancouver, you know, even some of the elected park board commissioners, or at least the ones who we've talked to, said they didn't even know this was coming. So this has all come fairly quickly. There were a bunch of questions. And, you know, even in the lead-up to last night's vote, there were a lot of people, including current and past city councillors and park board commissioners, who had a bunch of questions that they felt like they just still didn't have answers to. Yeah, and one of those former councillors was Tim Lewis, who said yep. that this would open the door to development. And I think his quote was something like, say goodbye to part or all of Sunset Beach. Now, that's, that's pretty bold. 
And would you say that's kind of alarmist talk, or do you think there's some reality there? Well, you know, uh, Tim is uh, a public uh, figure, and he's, uh, you know, entitled to his uh, predictions and his view. Uh, I mean, today, currently under the Vancouver Charter as it exists today, City Council does have the uh, authority to revoke the status of a park that's classified as temporary, which Sunset Beach is. Um, which, I mean, I, I didn't know that before looking at this. I didn't know that some parks only kind of technically have temporary classification. Um, so, you know, t- Tim is raising these worries. Uh, I think they're fair questions to be asked in sort of as we approach such a massive decision, right? It's a big change. It's, you know, it's, a gov- it's, an, a, it's an elected body that's been operating in Vancouver for 130-some-odd years. So to get rid of it, and there is indeed, there does seem to be some public support for the idea of getting rid of an extra layer of bureaucracy, mm-hmm. rid of, you know, sort of streamlining things. There is some frustration with the status quo and how parks and recreation are managed in Vancouver. So it, 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 I think there is some support for the general idea, but as I say, it is also a very major change that kind of came forward very quickly. And, you know, ABC didn't run on this idea in the last election, even though Kevin Sim had sort of loaded the idea a year and a half before the election. He pivoted his thinking as the election got closer, publicly said that his plan was to run a strong slate of park board candidates and get them elected, which they did, of course. ABC got six out of the seven park board commissioner seats. So they seem to have a supermajority on the park board. But, you know, in the mayor's view, uh, that wasn't enough to fix what he describes as sort of the broke, the fundamentally kind of broken governance system that's in place. Right. So what's next in this process? Well, I, I guess the city of Vancouver will be making its formal request to the province and uh, it'll be up to the province. You know, uh, mm-hmm. the Ministry of Municipal Affairs, uh, we asked them for a statement last week and they said something to the effect of, you know, this is, this is the Vancouver Council's decision. If they make this decision and make the request to us, we're going to look to move this forward and look to implement it. Um, that's what the a statement from the Ministry of Municipal Affairs last week said. Now, today, just this morning, Premier David Eby was asked his thoughts about this, and he sort of said something to the effect that it's a big change and the province is going to want to see a really detailed transition plan, you know, that, that includes the community, includes the local First Nations, and, you know, really details how this transition would work. So, you know, the Premier said they're going to want to see more information as this moves forward. Dan Fumano is a writer with the Vancouver Sun. Thanks for talking to us, Dan. Great. Thanks for having me, Martin. Uh, The B.C. government announced some new rules today to help prevent trucks from plowing into overpasses. It's it's hard to believe, but it's happening more and more. 2023 was a bad year. Uh, The latest was in September when a semi hit the Main Street overpass in North Van on Highway 1. Uh, it was traffic gridlock for hours and hours as they worked on on fixing these big, heavy pieces of destroyed concrete. And imagine doing that kind of work when everyone's honking at you. Uh, earlier, uh, we talked to BC's Minister of Transportation, Rob Fleming, and here he is uh, this afternoon talking about these changes. We're taking tougher action to prevent these crashes, tougher regulations, bigger fines and robust enforcement. And we are requiring new technical requirements, including warning devices and speed limiter technology on every commercial truck in the province. We're introducing stronger deterrence for those very few, and I want to stress very few, 
outliers, those very few unsafe commercial drivers, and the companies that employ them. That was Rob Fleming, BC's Minister of Transportation. We had him on earlier talking about how he plans to make it more expensive for truckers who break the rules. But let's hear from the truckers. Goggin Singh is with the United Truckers Association, and he's with us now. Hi, Goggin. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me and giving us time. Yeah, so so Rob Fleming uh, was very careful uh, to point out that it's a tiny percentage of truckers that they're focusing on. Um, but as someone who represents the truckers of BC, uh, what was the mood like as they heard his his uh, announcement today? Honestly, saying uh, everything is fine, except that if I see the report by the ministry, uh, if I have a chance or if I can issue a ticket, I can issue a ticket to the minister for the incomplete report. Because, first of all, the report doesn't say that how many accidents have been done, uh, what are the real reasons behind those accidents. Like, if it, it varies from accident to an accident. There are sometimes dump trucks are met with an accident. Sometimes there is an equipment used in the excavating industry. Sometimes that equipment uh, is is the reason behind the accident. So moreover, I think, and another, the missing part is that there's no educational stuff in this uh, release, which is the most bitter part. Right, because I, I asked him about uh, driver error and whether it was driver training the problem. He did say that uh, that was not the big concern to him. It's a big concern. He cannot think about it for himself. Let's, for example, let's take his example. When he was a common layman and then after he becomes an MLA, so there's a proper training for them. Mm-hmm. You personally, yourself, think, think about like when you come right away first day in the studio, you were not able to begin like as you are doing now. So which means training is the must thing. And there's no concern by the government about the training stuff which is a missing part. Mm-hmm. So how do you see that as somebody representing the United Truckers Association? I mean, what, what's your plan for, uh, is there like internship programs, people sitting in with truckers as they drive? What's the answer there to, in your mind? Oh, with all due respect, the concern is that we only represent truckers working at the Port of Metro Vancouver, so we are not dedicated for all truckers. So that's the, that's the hardest thing for us. We are just a volunteered, run-based association. We don't accept any kind of grants or we, we are not money-making cows like some other organizations who have to do this job. But I think we will write down a letter on our behalf to the minister that there needs to be a training manual for, for the truckers so that because training is the most dangerous thing that if there's no no training, I think that's the main reason behind all these accidents. Right, and and he talked a lot about technology, uh, uh, different things, uh, indicators that will tell you if something is not right, if something is sticking up, or also uh, internet apps that tell you what's coming up and what the clearances are. Um, how do you how do you uh, hear that coming from him? That that there should be new standards for safety features on the vehicles. That's a very nice part about uh, the internet stuff, uh, technology part. It's it's totally perfect. But uh, on the other hand, 
technology didn't allow about the traffic stuff. Like, for example, if if uh, if the tunnel bridge was supposed to be, if these folks didn't stop the construction for that bridge, that bridge may supposed to be active or working on the ground. So right. at some point, if you see the truckers, they have lots of liabilities. They have lots of pressures from their employers, dispatchers, uh, and frontliners. And that, that's the most dangerous part of that. Again, I'm coming back to, yes, technology part is totally right. nice. And even though for me personally, honestly speaking, that just a while ago, just 10, uh, 15 minutes ago, someone shared a link from Dry BC, which they need to share this in the beginning, just in the first accident. And this is the very nice thing for the people, for the education part. But moreover, this is not enough. Right. So I, I, I've got to cut you off, Goggin. We're out of time. But I appreciate you coming on and uh, giving your side of, of this very, very uh, interesting topic. Goggin Singh is a spokesperson for the United Truckers Association. And if you've seen that Netflix show, uh, The Squid Game, the original one, you know, it's probably not the game show you want to be on. Uh, the show is basically about people who are kind of down on their luck and they agree to be in this survivor style competition, but unlike shows like survivor, uh, you actually get killed if you lose a challenge. That's the fictional version of the squid game. Well, that series was so popular. They've now made it into a real game show with real people. The first season of squid game, the challenge has just wrapped on Netflix. And one of those contestants was actually someone from right here in Vancouver. Daryl Johnson was player number 273. She was eliminated during the life-size battleship board game. And Daryl is with us now. Hi, Daryl. Congratulations. And thanks for being here. Hi, Martin. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So, so nobody was killed in this game show? No, just my soul. Yeah, just your soul. Uh, yeah, so um, I'm looking forward to seeing it because, uh, I mean, the, the actual show, The Squid Game, uh, was such a, a brutal thing, but it was so fun to watch. And uh, so what did they do? Like, w tell me about what the process was like. Did you all live in the same space for the whole time? It, yes, we did, um, but only those that got past red light, green light. So we were brought into London where we filmed, and the first game that we played was Red Light, Green Light, which took place for those of us like myself that were there until the very stretch of it all, nine and a half hours. Um, and then if you lost, which was, I think, over 250 some odd people, you would have been flown back to wherever you were living immediately. And then those of us that got past Red Light, Green Light, we would have gone into the dorms from there, which is where we lived with each other. I think to start 197 of us sleeping all in the same big warehouse snorers and all yeah <laughs> that could be the most brutal thing is they put you beside someone who snores really loud what was the the absolute toughest thing that you had to do Red light, green light. Like, hands down, that was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, mentally, physically. And that's what anybody who's like an Olympian athlete, um, people with SWAT members, all sorts of people from all walks of life, every single one of us says it's the hardest thing we've ever done mentally and physically. I mean, like, you can't imagine what it's like to sprint for one and a half to four seconds and then freeze for 30 minutes in negative, you know, freezing 
weather for 20, 30 minutes on end and then repeat that for hours and hours and hours on end. Very, very difficult. And it pushes you past the point of what you think your physical and mental limitations are. I mean, getting into the dorms and being in the social dynamic and navigating how you create your alliances and all that, it's, it's tough, but it's not all that different from other reality shows. Not that I've been on multiple, but Red Light, Green Light was definitely something else. Yeah, because when you said Red Light, Green Light at first, I thought, oh, that's awesome. I remember playing that game, but it's sl- <laughs> slightly different. <laughs> yes, yes. So, amplified a little. And so you got knocked out on the the life size battleship board game. So describe what was so challenging about that, and and how did you end up getting uh, ousted because of it? Yeah, so I'm actually ironically a board game designer myself. Um, I make them, publish them. And so when I had the opportunity to step up and be a captain, or no, I wasn't a captain, I was a co-captain in that, um, in Battleships, that to me was like, okay, if I'm getting on this show, that sounds like a pretty thing, pretty cool thing to do in itself. And I wouldn't say that Battleships was a hard experience. It was just a very cool one. I mean, it's a game of luck for the most part. You're just, you're guessing and there are psychologically different coordinates that are more likely to be guessed than others. But um, you know, I think for some people to leave the game at that point out of a game of luck was probably pretty hard when you have 4.56 million U.S. dollars in front of you. But for me, I mean, if I if that was the end of my road, I was really happy to leave at that point to be um, exiting it, exiting it in something that I have as a regular part of my life already in board games. Like that was ironic to me. So yeah. Yeah. So so you you really know board games. So was everybody as sort of hip to to battleship as you were? Like knowing what you should call out, like C twenty two or something. Are there is there a strategy for battleship? Um, there's not that much strategy. The most common coordinate that's guessed is C three, and ironically, my team put their boat in a C three end of the day, I didn't, even though the captain and co-captain could choose the coordinates, I didn't want to be responsible for somebody else's chance at winning this much money. So we decided, you know what, you guys pick what boat you want to be in and put it wherever you want. And a lot of people in the group have, in all of the teams, have played battleships before. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people listening right now have played the game before, but what we thought was, okay, well, they say there will be twists and turns in this show. What if we see battleships right now, but it's something else? What if there's another strategy? What if they put some sort of twist into this game? And that's why I ended up being nominated to be the um, lieutenant on that game specifically. Right. You were the lieutenant. So so what's the grand prize total? 4.56 million U.S. So I think it's about 6.1 Canadian, roughly. Holy cow. That's pretty good. Yeah. So has the last episode aired yet on Netflix? It- it has. Uh, it's been about a week now. Um, I won't give any spoilers, but it's definitely all 10 episodes are out now and you can binge it. And I would say it's pretty binge worthy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I really enjoyed the, the original series. I thought it was so stylish and so fun to watch. So uh, I'm looking forward to, to sitting down and binging this one. So what, what did you take away from it? I'm guessing you probably made some lifelong friends. Definitely some lifelong friends. In the past, I've looked at reality shows and thought, how could somebody cry on TV or make a friend that close in such a short period of time? But it's very immersive. So that's one. And the other is just learning how far you can really push yourself. Like the boundaries and the cup, the lid that we put on our mental and physical um, abilities, I think we can definitely push past those. We just need to be in an environment that um, permits us to do that. 
Well, uh, watch the show. Daryl Johnson is uh, is Vancouver's own entry into the show. And uh, I guess a spoiler alert for people, uh, you, you don't win, but um, <laughs> but they can root for you anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, congratulations, Daryl. That's uh, really awesome and uh, very, very, very cool. So uh, what, what's next for you now? What are you going to concentrate on now? Uh, I want to keep making games. So I just launched one in the last two weeks. It's called Tiger Banana Pancake. And I'm looking at making a game inspired by the show called Ships for Squids Now. And I'm, I'm hoping to get that launched probably in the next six months or so. Or so. Uh, all right. Thank you, Daryl. Thanks for being here. Of course. Thank you. And this is Martin Strong in for jazz this afternoon, along with uh, Jerry Mayer Judson. And uh, I, I was going to say that I, I feel like this might be over, the, have jumped the shark, this phrase, but I was today years old when I learned <laughs> that there are pet food banks yes. as well as food banks. Yes. I think you can still say today years old. I like that one. Oh, I don't okay. care if it's corny. Good, good. <laughs> as I remember being today years old when I learned about today years old. <laughs> when I was months ago years old, it gets kind of, you can't use it. But anyways, I was yesterday years old, actually, when I learned about um, the fact that there are, in fact, pet food banks. And it kind of goes with this thread that we've been talking about because we've been talking kind of about tipping and affordability and how right. no one, you know, can afford anything. And of course, the, it's the holiday season and conventional food banks are seeing unprecedented levels of demand and they need donations, but so too do pet food banks. And I talked to Diane Waters. She is the BC SPCA outreach specialist. And my first question for her was, do pet food banks function like people food banks? Our pet food banks are very similar to people food banks. We try to model them after best practices that we found through people food banks. I did a huge audit of over 300 pet food banks or food organizations last year, and we were able to come up with some best practices on how to have low barrier and sustainable models for people and communities. So our first one in the SPCA was started in 2000 by Dr. James Lawson. Um, he met a dog from a vulnerable person in the downtown east side who unfortunately didn't have enough money to feed the pup and unfortunately Charlie did pass away but we did name the food bank after Charlie and it was born through that process so Dr. James Lawson decided there was a need um, for pet food in the community so he started that program and then in 2020 um, with COVID we saw the need going up just because of the amount of people who are out of work um, staying home or just able to kind of not keep themselves afloat so we expanded to 36 other BCSPCA locations in the province. Oh, wow. I hear demand is incredibly high this year in particular. Yeah, this year with the, um, the rising cost in inflation um, and also housing instability, food insecurity, those are playing a, a serious role in need. And then also climate emergencies. Anytime there's a wildfire or a flood, the, uh, the need for community services like this goes up exponentially. Compared to last year, we've handed out 20% more meals to animals and we've had 93, 94,000 kilograms of pet food um, distributed into our communities so far this year. Um, we're hoping to hit 95,000 kilograms distributed. How can 
someone go and access the pet food bank if if they need it? Is this a, is it as easy as going to a, a location of the BCSPCA? Yeah, absolutely. So um, most of our locations are walk-in friendly. You're always able to walk in and just say, hey, I'm in need. Um, we keep it very low barrier. You don't need to bring ID, proof of income, like nothing like that. If you're in need, we'll help you out. We are able to make purchases for the program, but it's also donation-based. So those donations go directly to folks in the community who are in need. How can we help and what do you need the most of? For us, a lot of the communities need cat food. For some reason, it's dry cat food that goes the fast. Okay. I think it's because people are able to keep pets that are smaller more generally in, in bigger cities. So we, we definitely always need cat food, dry dog food. Most of our locations have an Amazon wish list. So if you're not able to actually make physical donations, you can always order through the Amazon wish list. Um, otherwise, on our website, on the outreach page, there is an option to donate a meal to a community member. So I think it's a $30 donation and it will provide a week's worth of food for an animal in need. The BCSPCA is really working hard to try and keep families together. So the main purpose of our outreach program, such as the food bank or the safe keepers program, is to be able to keep families with their pets um, just because we really recognize that the human-animal bond is um, is really important and therapeutic to people who might be struggling or have nobody else. So um, with these programs, it allows us to be able to keep families with their with their best friends. And that was Dan Waters, the BCSPCA Outreach Specialist. She was delightful. And I will direct you, so it's spca.bc.ca on their community outreach page. There's, I'm looking at this drop-down menu, you can donate 30 bucks to donate some kibble there's different options you can for 58 bucks you can feed an animal in care for a week um there's a hundred dollar whatever is needed donation so or you can even go, go buy some dry cat food and dry dog food and get it to your nearest bcspca location yeah so dried cat food is the thing that yeah. they need the most because cats are more permissible in bigger cities she was saying like yeah just in in larger places we're not we don't have as large of pets so yeah usually the landlords take kinder to cats so yeah lots and lots of cat food yeah, and it is one of those things when you think about it, when you first hear about a pet food bank, mm -hmm. you compare it to a food bank for humans and you think, well, you know, humans, that's more important. But when you think about it, if someone is really low on funds, mm -hmm. they don't have the money, going to buy pet food is really expensive. Oh, it's a lot. And then if you're choosing between feeding yourself and paying rent, and then you also have this little critter and you, of course, if this little critter is your solace in these yeah. no affordability times, are you... Uh, pet owner? I am a pet owner. I have a dog <gasps> named Gallop oh, and, a, and a cat named Millhouse. Oh, that's amazing. And, and I know how much dry cat food costs and I know how much the cat loves dried cat food for some reason. It's but, good. But it's true because if you didn't have, if you don't have the money to buy good nutritious food for your pet, you're probably going to give it table scraps. Yeah. And that's not so good for the pet. And it's probably stuff that you know, like bread and all the things that they shouldn't be eating. Yeah. And that's probably what they're going to get. Exactly. So hope that if you can donate that you do. And I hope that maybe if you didn't know that the pet food bank was something that you might like to access, I hope that that got to you, uh, got to you as well. Yeah. So it's some nice work. I mean, it is Christmas. And uh, it's it's the time to to think about that stuff. And also, we were talking about Christmas cards earlier. Yeah. I mean, are you somebody who sends out Christmas cards? You're not gonna like this. I'm like a I'm like the resident Scrooge. I'm not a very festive person, no. but I will engage. I'm not anti Christmas by any <laughs> by any means. I'm like more like a Christmas agnostic. You know what I mean? So like, yeah. I think Christmas cards are cute. I see them in the reception area, and I think the process. I like I like the idea. 
Yeah. Yeah. So do I. And I, I always, we always buy some really precious ones that we Aww. give to oh, people. Oh, you send to people. But I don't send them out. And every year I think I'm going to send them out. You should do one with your animals. Yeah, that's and true. Christmas sweaters. I, I take a lot of photos of my animals. Aww. But it's true. Uh, the, the Christmas card, the physical Christmas card is actually on the way up. Really? Yes, because in 2000, they figured that, uh, this is in the United States, but I'm sure it has repercussions here. Two billion Christmas cards were sent every year in the year 2000. By 2015, okay. um, that number had plummeted by about half. No way. To about, uh, it was one billion. And then since then, it's been slowly steadying and they, they figure it's about 1.3 billion this year. So the Christmas card, like the vinyl record. I was about to say, like the vinyl record. It's coming back. Wow. That's so interesting. I wonder what happened between 2000 and 2015. Do we all, I guess because the proliferation of all the e-greetings and stuff like that, it feels now again, it's not novel to send an e-greeting. Now it's yeah. novel and special to get a physical card. It's way more special. It's it's just like having a record in your hand and people respond to that. And younger people statistically are sending more. 18 to 34 year olds are sending more Christmas cards than people in no the generation before them. No way. That's my demo. Look at me. Look yeah. at us go. Look sending out. I got I to gotta catch up. I got to send some cute little Christmas cards. Watch your inbox. Yeah. Watch your inbox. <laughs> <laughs> your physical one. The it, mailbox. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, thanks for that. And uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about, uh, that was uh, Jerry Mayer Judson. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Roberto Luongo, Vancouver's own. Uh, we'll talk to Blake Price. He's being honored tonight and we'll hear all about it when we return on the Jazz Joe Hall Show on CKNW. Great save, Luongo. When's the last time you heard that? Uh, we heard it a lot back in the day between 2006 and 2013 as Roberto Luongo earned the record for wins and shutouts by any Vancouver Canuck goalie. And Luongo is back in town tonight as the Calgary, uh, the Calgary Flames. <laughs> the Vancouver, where did that come from? I'm not a Calgary Flames fan. Uh, the Vancouver Canucks will open their game against the uh, Florida Panthers, and they're going to have a special ceremony that will put Roberto Luongo into the Canucks' ring of honor, where he will join other beloved Canucks like Pat Quinn, Orland Curtinback, and uh, fellow goalie Kirk McLean. So a couple of goalies in the ring of honor. And with us now to talk about the incredible impact that Roberto Luongo has had, not just on the Canucks, but uh, on this entire town as well, is one of the, the stars of the Sakaris and Price podcast, podcast Blake Price. Uh, thanks for being here, Blake. Anytime. All right, let's talk about Roberto Luongo, because it's very rare uh, that a goalie has the kind of career that Roberto Luongo had and rarer still that uh, a hockey team kind of builds itself around that player. So that makes him very special as a goalie, doesn't it? Well, he was uh, brought in to be sort of uh, that final piece for the Canucks at the time. They knew they had a good core to, to build on with the Sedin twins and they needed that final piece. They needed surefire goaltending to be that staple for them. And he came in and immediately gave them that. Uh, and in fact, uh, then they had to build out around him because they realized they actually didn't have as many pieces as they anticipated. And the strategy, his uh, former head coach, head coach Elaine Vigno, used to say that in the first couple of years that Luongo was around, the game strategy was just come on Louie. 
and <laughs> in the hopes that, that he would just steal games for them. And for a couple of years, that was what he was tasked to do. Uh, but eventually, they would build out around him and become a much deeper team and become the formidable uh, group that won a couple of uh, regular season trophies, the President's Trophies, and and uh, ultimately fell just one game short of a Stanley Cup. Yeah, and I guess that's the trouble with uh, this celebration tonight. It's forcing us all here in the Lower Mainland to confront uh, 2011 which was, uh, you know, it was tragic on many levels. And uh, it wasn't a great series for Roberto Luongo, was it? I mean, he was obviously a a key part of the team, and they did go to seven games. Uh, So talk about uh, his his, uh, contribution to that playoff Stanley Cup run. Well, it was, uh, honestly, I, I don't know that there was a Stanley Cup run that had as many twists and turns and perhaps <laughs> we're just too darn close to it to uh, to uh, be objective on this. But, I mean, you think about the fact that, you know, in an elimination game in the first round with the Chicago Blackhawks mounting a comeback, he doesn't get the start in game six of that series versus the Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, you know, not many surefire. He wasn't, in a, this was not a team that, they really shared the goaltending duties. Uh, Corey Schneider at that point was an up-and-comer for sure. They, we knew that. But he wasn't a 1A or 1 and 1B situation with, with Roberto Luongo. Luongo was the starter. And for him not to start an elimination game where they're up, where they're looking to eliminate the other team, um, was sort of unfathomable at the time. But he shakes that off, eventually beats the Blackhawks, and then makes his way to the Stanley Cup final after a couple of very tidy series versus the Preds and Sharks. And they, of course, get off the start in that Stanley Cup final with back-to-back wins on home ice. He even has a shutout in game number one. And you're thinking, my goodness, what a story is this guy authoring. And then the Boston games happened, and it's almost impossible to describe uh, how outplayed they were in Boston and how quickly those games were over early, early leads for the Boston Bruins and massive leads in both games three and four. And you just knew that uh, they were in for a battle. And yet, after they win in Vancouver, one to nothing, again, second shutout of the series. So he has two shutouts in the series, and yet most would be on pins and needles watching him play. So they go into Boston again, up three games to two, a chance to win the Stanley Cup. And again, uh, Boston rears its head and, and uh, shows that you know Luongo was just a, a human like the rest of us, and they needed Game Seven, and we know how that goes. But it was just the craziest twists and turns, thrills, disappointments, and and he was there riding the roller coaster along with us. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't believe anybody doesn't remember, but maybe if they don't, they went to Game 7, they lost to Boston, and then the riot happened in Vancouver. And, it, I mean, it's such a part of Vancouver culture. So let's talk about what Roberto Luongo did for this city. I mean, he was much beloved in the Lower Mainland, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. He He gave this team a swagger. I mean, for three or four years there, people knew the Vancouver Canucks had a chance to win the Stanley Cup. And, it, you know, we weren't a punchline. We weren't a a city that had a team that, you know, people either made fun of or would look down their nose at because of a Bertuzzi incident or, you know, the Donald Brashear incident, that sort of thing. Like, there was always these distractions. Even the 94 riot, of course, sort of lingered uh, for a number of years and sort of hung over uh, this city, and there wasn't a lot of wins and losses to brag about if you were a Vancouver Canucks fan. 
But Luongo, along with the Sedins, gave this team, gave this city something to brag about, something to be chest out about. And, um, you know, the fact that he was such an intriguing character as well, and we eventually unmasked him as Strombone One on Twitter, and he had uh, just a marvelous personality. Uh, he would rear his head in streeters for the Weather Network, and, you know, he was just, he was a character. There were so many fun twists and uh, intriguing storylines for Roberto Luongo. He gave even the people out east something to talk about for the Vancouver Canucks uh, on the national scale. Yeah, that that's true. And I guess as a result of that, they gave him a really big, very long con- contract, very kind of unprecedentedly long contract. In your mind, looking back at it, uh, was that contract a mistake? Well, I've had numerous conversations with a man who orchestrated that um, that contract in GM at the time, Mike Gillis, and his former assistant general manager, Lawrence Gilman, and they will be emphatic about this. They were not given any warnings that this would be deemed an illegal contract or a, you know irregular contract down the road, which ultimately the NHL did decide and and uh, attach punitive measures to the Canucks in terms of salary cap hits um, when Luongo retired. Um, the, the contract was only a mistake in the context of trading it, and that's what gave rise to the. Now infamous quote, my contract sucks. And both Mike Gillis yesterday uh, on my show and Roberto Luongo to the entire throng of media today at Rogers Arena said, no, no, the contract didn't suck at all. Uh, it made him a very rich man. He was already uh, rich at that point. Uh, he never begrudged the money that was involved in this. It was that the structure and the length of the deal made it an unwieldy contract to trade. So within the context of trades, yeah, the contract sucked for a contract to be traded. But he was always very thankful, I think, at the opportunity that was given and the generosity given by the owner and and, and the idea behind the contract, which was ultimately to lower the cap hit for the Vancouver Canucks and have an affordable goaltender uh, for a time eternum, effectively. But then things went sour with the team. They, they weren't as competitive as they thought they were going to be. They needed a refresher. And they thought that turning to a younger goaltender might be the way to do that. Um, ultimately, they found that trading Roberto Longo was just too darn difficult uh, at that point, uh, at that moment, at least when he said my contract sucks. Eventually, it happened, of course, when a couple more years had ticked off the contract, and uh, and he was sent home to the Florida Panthers. So um, it was uh, it was an unorthodox contract at the time. It was a creative one, but. Ultimately, I don't think it was uh, it was a mistake. No. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it seems like ancient history now. I, I think uh, it'll be pretty much uh, all love tonight when they honor him at the game. Hey, yeah, I think so too. Uh, I mean, the the only lingering question is whether or not he deserved to be uh, in the rafters, of course, as a retired number versus a Ring of Honor. Um, and certainly, this is somewhere in between because I don't know that a Ring of Honor recipient has ever had this much. Uh, build up to his big night at Rogers Arena. I don't know that the team has gone this far above and beyond in creating merchandise and screensavers and all that sort of stuff. I mean, this is more befitting of a of a number of retirement. For a long time, I was very suspicious that maybe they were going to surprise him because of the unique character that he was. I think it would have been a really fun thing to 
bring him here with everybody under the assumption that it was going to be a ring of honor and then just surprise him and have the, have the jersey hung in the rafters. But some of the merchandise that they're selling does say ring of honor on it. So, alas, I think my conspiracy theory is, is out the window. Uh, but people will be, I think, uh, unanimous in their praise of him, some thinking that maybe he should be given that, uh, that slightly higher level of honor. But ultimately, it's been pointed out, I mean, as a jersey number that's retired, you merely get that banner in the rafters and as a member of the Ring of Honor, you actually get your face up there, and it's actually a much bigger display than the ones uh, that are reserved for the uh, numbers that are retired. So in some ways, he gets the bigger honor, uh, if not in terms of the uh, the hierarchy. Yeah, that's true, right alongside Pat Quinn. Uh, well, Blake, it's yeah. always a pleasure to hear your voice. Uh, Blake Price, part of Sakaris and Price, the podcast. Thanks for talking to us about Roberta Luongo. Hey. Thanks, Mike. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.